Please join me in a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are in a sermon series titled Lessons from the Wilderness. We followed the people of God from their exodus in Egypt through their wilderness wanderings, and we are now at the bank of the Jordan River. The first leg of their journey is over. Last week, we explored a passage in which 12 spies went to scout the promised land, and they found that the land was good, flowing with milk and honey, but the land was not all good. There were other inhabitants who were stronger, bigger than they, and so they quailed in fear. This Sunday, Numbers 14, we're going to consider the reaction of the people of God to the report of their spies. Would they listen to the minority report, the report from Joshua and Caleb, that the land was good, they could overcome based on God's promises, or would they listen to uh, the voice of the ten spies who said that it was too much and they should return to the land of Egypt? And uh, spoiler alert, the people of God failed. Uh, they listened to the report of the 10 spies and they turned away from God. We're going to look at the passage this morning and it's Numbers chapter 14. We're going to explore the passage and then I'm gonna make three points of application. We're going to explore this passage and break it into three scenes. Scene one, a crime, scene two, a punishment, and scene three, a mediation. You can follow along with some sermon notes in your service leaflet. Let's jump right in. So how did the people respond to this mixed message from the spies? Would they trust God and proceed to the promised land or would they step back in fear? Well, they failed. The people of God failed and they failed in a spectacular fashion. All throughout the, this wilderness journey, the people of God have not been exemplary in their behavior. Uh, there have been plenty of missteps, but their misstep this and the passage this week seems to be of a different degree than previous missteps. Their failure was complete and complete in, in a couple of regards. It was complete in that the, all the people failed. Verse 1, all the congregation raised a loud cry. Verse 2, all the people of Israel grumbled. Ver same verse, the whole congregation. Notice the repetition. Everybody, all, the whole congregation. They all failed. Not only was their failure complete in that all failed, their failure was complete and they all, they completely failed to, they, uh, failed to trust in God in, in, his, in his entirety. What I mean is that they not only rejected God's character, why has God brought us out into the wilderness to perish? That's in verse three, but they also rejected God's plan of salvation. Remember the plan of salvation to, to bring God's people to a promised land? They reject that plan and opt instead for the land of Egypt, the land of slavery. That is in verse four. Verse 10, they reject God's appointed leaders that being Moses and Aaron. They set out to stone them. And it may be of interest to note that stoning, uh, throwing stones at a person till, so till, till that person dies, this is not the action of a mob violence. 
stoning in the Old Testament is reserved for an execution for a particular crime. So blasphemy was punished by stoning. In other words, this is not the action of a mob. This is an action of a, a sober-minded congregation that has deliberately turned their back on God. They completely failed God and that they all turned away and they completely failed God and that they rejected all of him, his character, his plans, and his appointed leaders. Their failure is complete. And there ends the first scene. Not a very promising scene, is it? Well, as the scene opens, the play opens for our second scene, uh, it doesn't get much better because now we encounter the crime, now the punishment. The punishment is recorded in verses 11 and 12. God says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? I will strike them with a pestilence. I will disinherit them and I will make you, that you is referring to Moses, I will make you into a great nation. In other words, God says, I'm done. I'm done with this faithless people who reject me completely, who reject me entirely. I'm done and I'm going to start with someone else. I will start with you, Moses. I don't know how that strikes you. If this were the only passage that we had to describe God's character and how God interacts with you and me, then we may come to some misguided conclusions about God's character, about who he is. Here, if this were the only passage, we may come to the conclusion that God is, well, acts a little bit like a child who says, I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. I'm done. But this is not the only passage that describes the character of God. It is a passage that describes the character of God, but far from the only one. In verse 18 of this same chapter, we read that this same God who is, has passionate anger against his people is the same God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. So back to verses 11 and 12. These verses do not describe God completely, but they do describe God accurately. And they portray God as accurately, portray God as God who is angered by his children when his children turn away from him. And just as God's love is passionate for his children, God's anger is passionate when his children turn away from him. I want to pause just a moment and consider the virtue of appropriate anger. I believe that every parent, every good parent, should at times be angry with their children. Now a parent's anger is not always justified. It is not always proportionate. It is not always appropriately expressed. I think my children would be the first to testify to that that is the case. Nonetheless, parents should 
be angry at the misconduct of their children. A personal example. One of the worst decisions that I made as a young person was to pick, pick up tobacco. And I was at a very young age. I can't remember how young, but uh, too young. And at some point in time, my parents found out, one of whom is with us now, but my dad was the one who was most incensed. Uh, very, very mad. And why was he mad? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. He was mad because I had done something that he had said not to do. I disobeyed him. I'd hidden something from him. But he was also mad because he knew that I was doing something that would ultimately harm me. And that is the case. An addiction to tobacco or any addiction is never completely gone. It still lingers in the past, in the rearview mirror. So my decision dishonored my parents and dishonored myself as well. And when a child makes a decision like that, it is appropriate for a parent to be angry. In your sermon notes, I write that there are three reasons why a parent may not be angry with their child. Reason number one, the children are perfect. Reason number two, the parents are uninformed. Reason number three, parents may be unconcerned for the well-being of their children. But if a parent is concerned, if a parent is informed, if a parent's children are not perfect, then a parent will always have be angry at the misconduct of their children. God is not an unconcerned, uninformed ch- uh, parent. His children, you and me, are far from perfect. Therefore, God's anger is appropriate in this passage. He is angered at the disobedience of his children, which does not honor him and ultimately does not honor themselves. So we move from the crime, the punishment, and now to the mediation. A mediator is someone who is in the middle of two feuding parties. So a mediator's job is to reconcile, to bring to peace two parties that are estranged or at odds with one another. And Moses, in this passage, is that man. He is the person in the middle who makes peace between God and man, and he does so through his intercessory prayer. If you follow along in the passage, it is in italics. Uh, We didn't read it. But Moses intercedes to God on behalf of his people. And in this case, Moses reminds God of his character. God, you are slow to anger. You are abounding in love. Relent. Don't do this thing that you have threatened to do. And it works. God does not proceed with the punishment that he has threatened. So the crime, the punishment, and the mediation, the man in the middle who makes peace between the feuding parties, God and man. So now we summarize the story, and let's, having summarized the story, let's shift to application. What are we to make of stories like these? You know, there is a, a sentiment that The stories of the Old Testament should be left back there in the Old Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is a mean, nasty God, and the God of the New Testament is a lot nicer. And the stories of the Old Testament 
portray uh, stories of rules and laws and do this and you'll be blessed, don't do it and you'll be cursed. And the New Testament is a story of love and grace and kindness. So let's kind of disregard these stories in which we encounter the anger of God and his punishment to his children. We should not do that. We do not believe that there is two gods, a God of the Old Testament or a God of the New. Christians believe that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is accurately displayed in the one Bible, which is composed of two testaments, both the Old and the New. Further, Christians do not believe that there is two stories, an Old Testament story and a New Testament story. Christians believe that there is one story that is woven throughout the Bible, comprised of two testaments, both the Old and the New. So let's turn to the question of application. I want to draw three applications and implications from this story. The first simply is this. This story teaches us that we should have an appropriate fear of God. This story reminds us that God is not an uninformed, disengaged, unconcerned parent. He is our father. And like any good father, he is angered or pleased appropriately with his children. And his children should have an appropriate fear of his anger. Let me share one illustration of one person who feared God and how they developed that fear of God. This from the biography of Billy Graham that I've referenced these past few weeks. Early in his career, Billy Graham learned from the revivalist preacher named Dr. Okunga. He's a man I've never heard about before, but he was the pastor of Park Street Church in Boston, and Dr. Okunga was a great revivalist preacher. In the midst of a very successful revival in New England, Billy Graham stopped by Park Street Baptist Church, knocked on Dr. Okunga's church, and was led in by the secretary. To his surprise, Billy Graham found no one there. He was about to turn around and walk out when he heard a muffled sob from behind the desk. He looked closer and there he found Dr. Akinga lying face down on the floor, lying prostrate, meaning lying face down, just as those Moses and Aaron were lying face down before God, so was Dr. Akinga lying face down, sobbing in his prayer. Graham resolved from that day forward that if this famous and respected leader humbled himself in this way before God, lying prostrate on the floor, praying through his tears, he would do, this, do the same. And he simply did not pray for humility. He actively, Graham actively humbled himself. He humbled himself by kneeling every day, morning and evening, before God and his word. Occasionally he would lie face down before God in his prayers. Now to most of us, the idea of lying before God, even kneeling before God, may sound old-fashioned, even theatrical. 
But as I cite in your notes, we may have forgotten the art of kneeling before God and his word to our own detriment. So I encourage you to begin each day and close each day kneeling. It will remind you that God is God and you are not. Fear God. Second implication, hate sin. None of us reckon with sin as it is. Often we think of sin as simply crossing an arbitrary line. Don't do that, why? Because I said. But this passage helps us appreciate the severity of sin. It is a personal offense to God and something that is ultimately harmful to us. Hate sin. I write in your sermon notes a quote from Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, we mollycoddle ourselves spiritually. That's a great word, we mollycoddle ourselves, meaning that we indulge ourselves with self-pity. We say, I deserve it, poor me, I deserve whatever it is that I think I deserve rather than indulging or justifying or molly-coddling ourselves, we should ask God to help us to hate sin for what it is, an offense against God and damaging to ourselves. Third and final implication is to thank God for a mediator. Remember how I said that the Bible is not two stories, an Old Testament story and a New Testament story, but there is one story that runs throughout the Bible. Well, that one story is captured for us in this passage. What is the one story of the Bible? It is the story of a holy God and a deeply flawed people and someone in the middle, someone making peace. And that's exactly what we have in this passage, in our passage this morning. It is the man Moses who makes peace through his intercessory prayer. And that is a ministry that is available to all of us. All of us, in some sense, can be a mediator between God and those we love. Mediating for our children, God have mercy. Mediating for our parents, our spouses, for our nation. We all have a mediatorial role like Moses. Did you note how Moses appealed to God's character? Remember, God, you are loving and kind and just. That is a well-worn path throughout the Bible. The Bible is full of people interceding, reminding God of his loving character. And it should be the same for us. Intercession is one form of mediation and one that is available to you and me. But there is a better mediator who makes a better mediation. And that is what the Bible, this passage points to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read this. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The one man, Jesus Christ. And just as Moses was the man in the middle, so is Jesus, the man in the middle. Literally, he is the man in the middle. God from God, light from light, true God of true God, yet born of a virgin. 
He is the man with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. He is, by his nature, the perfect mediator between God and men because he is the one and only God-man. And our perfect mediator makes a perfect mediation. The prayer of the, the, inter, the mediation of Moses was one of intercession. He intercedes in his prayers. Jesus offers a better mediation, not of intercession, but of intervention. Did you see the punishment that was prescribed in Numbers for the disobedience of the children of God? Let me remind you. Verse 12. I will strike them down with a pestilence and I will disinherit them. Well, God has never disinherited anyone. Save one. Only one person has ever been disinherited. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. And that passage begins with this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you disinherited me? And this passage helps us answer that question. On the cross, Jesus endured a punishment that was not his own. He intervened. He takes our place. He is our perfect mediator. Not only by his nature, the man in the middle, one foot on heaven, one foot on earth, He is our perfect mediator by what he has done, bearing in his body the sins of the whole world and in doing so making peace between God and mankind. The Christian's hope for salvation is not that God's character has changed, that God is no longer angered by sin. That is not the hope for our salvation. God is was and always will be holy. The Christian hope for salvation is not that you and I are somehow fundamentally better or different than the people in, the, in this passage. No human nature is, is as entrenched as God's nature. The hope for salvation is that we have a mediator between God and men. The one man, Jesus Christ. So three implications. Fear God. Humble yourself before him. Hate sin. No more molly coddling ourselves. Rather, picking up our cross daily to follow him. Third, thank God that God has provided what you and I need. A man in the middle a mediator, and thank the mediator, Jesus Christ, for the work that he has done. Amen. Please rise.